The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. This is the Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to episode number seven. And this is a very exciting interview, in my humble opinion. Bill Sheft is joining us. He's written jokes for some of the most well-known people, actors, comedians, a U.S. president is in the mix. He's written a number of novels as well. The Ringer, Time Won't Let Me, Everything Hurts, and Shrink Thyself. My first time becoming aware of Bill Sheft was from The Late Show with David Letterman. Bill Sheft was a writer for David Letterman from 1991 until the end of the show in 2015. And I remembered watching The Late Show and here was this guy, Bill Sheft, one of the writers on the show, and he was being interviewed about the book Shrink Thyself. He was telling a story about his therapist and how he was explaining something to him, something tragic and personal and emotional that had happened to him. And what did he hear the therapist doing? The therapist was unscrewing the pickle jar, making a sandwich. I thought, this is somebody that I have to interview. I tried, and I was unsuccessful the first time. I tried again, and this is what we came up with. Here is Bill Sheft and I. You're listening to the Paul Leslie Hour, the show dedicated to the arts, writing, and the lost art of living. Our special guest, Bill Sheft, is a novelist, columnist, television, comedy writer, He's written jokes for some of the most well-known people, comedians, actors, and even a president of the United States. Not the current one. <laughs> and some of the books he's written, The Ringer, Time Won't Let Me, Everything Hurts, Shrink Thyself. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. Well, it's my pleasure. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. You sound good. Good, good. So when did you realize you had comedic ability? Very young. Well, you know, according to my mother, and she's 94, so we can ask her. When I was four, I was in the barber shop, and I had very long eyelashes when I was a little boy. And the woman next to me said, oh, you have such beautiful long eyelashes. Do you use mascara? And I said, no, Noxema. And, you know, my mother and her just fell out. And that's the first joke I ever told. When I was uh, very, you know, yeah, like five or six, you know, I had older brothers and sisters. My brother brought home the first family album, which was Vaughn Meter impersonating President Kennedy. And I memorized that album. And I used to do, you know, I was one of those kids that was very annoying that when his parents had parties, he would entertain and. So I thought I wanted to be a comedian. And then when I was 10, I decided I wanted to be an author because that sounded much more serious. And my uncle was a very famous sports writer, Herbert Warren Wind. And so then I also wanted to be a sports writer like him. So I actually became all the three things that I said I was going to become. I became a, I was a sports writer first and then I became a comic. And then I became a writer. I was lucky enough to get hired on the Letterman show in 1991. And then I became a real author, I, and I started writing books at the age of uh, 38. And the fact that I knew what I wanted to be is 
kind of shocking and kind of delusional as well. You know, I don't recommend it for anybody. Why is that? Well, because I think that you can, uh, um, I don't think that you, I don't think you know. And, and I, but I'm lucky because I kind of bumped around a little and I never, you know, when I finally got the job in the Letterman show and I was thrilled and I thought to myself, oh, well, now I'm a real writer. Well, I had been a real writer. I wrote for newspapers and magazines, but, you know, that didn't count. And then I started writing for Letterman and I was there for a few years. And then, you know, the voices in your head, which, you know, I, I hope you don't have the same as mine because they don't. They don't do impressions. They don't do anything. It just sounds like me with more confidence. They start saying, well, you know, all you do is write jokes. You're not a real writer. And then so I write a novel and the novel gets published and it's okay. Well, now I'm a real writer. And the voice in my head says, no, because anybody can write one novel. You got to write two. Then you're a real writer. And so I write my second one. And <laughs> Well, anybody can write two. So it just sort of doesn't end. But I'm very lucky and consider myself very fortunate that I, I feel like I do what I should be doing. Does writing get easier the more you do it? I think that easier, no. Easier, no. I think that you understand more and you become more adept at it. And, you know, and I do a lot of different types of writing. I will say that writing jokes gets easier because you figure out, how to do it, it's a specific muscle. That gets easier. In terms of writing long form, I think you just have to get into a state of mind. So easier is the wrong word. It gets more familiar. It gets more familiar. I mean, it's always, it's a torturous act. I mean, Red Smith, the famous sports writer, somebody said, how do you write? And he says, um, I uh, sit at the typewriter and I open a vein. And I mean, I'm not that dramatic, but I think that that's, I think that that's what a writer does. I've heard a lot of writers say that it's painful. It's painful to write, even if it's comedy. Do you agree? I don't think it's uh, so, uh, um, painful rarely for me. I mean, it, because I take, I find it a great relief to know when I'm about to write that it's something I can do. I mean, I think that, for instance, if you're a plumber, okay, I think that, that there's some things about plumbing that are backbreaking and that are difficult. But if you're a plumber, you know how to do everything that is put in front of you. So it's a relief. Oh, I know how to do this. This is just going to be hard or it's going to be easy. So I don't. I don't think it's painful. I think sometimes, I think you, if you're writing for somebody else, I think sometimes you work with, it can be challenging, but I don't think it's, I don't find it painful. I find it when I have finished a session writing, I'm a little lightheaded. I say that in the best possible way. I feel that, you know, my spirit has been lifted and um, I always feel as if I've accomplished Something, but there are many, many guys and many good writers, men and women, for whom the task is very painful. And I know this. I'm grateful that I'm not like that. I think that you, in terms of writing comedy, I think you have to be, I think your approach has to be serious in order to really get the stuff down that you want to get down. And that way you, you, if you're serious, you have more potential to entertain yourself 
with the results. Who taught you the most about comedy? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, wow, that's a great... Well, Dave Letterman taught me more than anybody. And, you know, when I, I submitted to the show five times and wasn't hired, and then on the sixth time... I was lucky enough to be hired and I came up to meet with him and I, and I had met him a couple of times since I was a comic and he used to come in to catch a rising star. So we kind of knew each other and we knew a lot of the same people. And I had written him some jokes that week and he had done a couple on the air. This is back at the old NBC show when he only did, he only did three jokes in the monologue on the NBC show, sometimes two. And when we went to CBS, he doubled it and then we tripled it. And then, but I said to him, this is right before I got hired. I said, is there anything, any advice or anything you need to, to tell me? And he said to me, yeah, one thing. He said, never write anything longer than four lines because I don't care how funny it is. If it's longer than four typewritten lines, it won't fit on a cue card. And so I can't do it. And that was, this is the day before I got hired. And that was to this day, Still, the only piece of practical advice he ever gave me about writing jokes, but it was the most important. And the other stuff that you learn about, you know, basically about writing jokes, there's two rules with writing jokes. Keep it as short as possible and put the very funniest word or phrase at the end of the joke. And you'd be surprised how many people don't do that. You you can watch a monologue done by these guys and the joke will get last, but technically the joke will be incorrectly constructed because the funniest thing won't end the joke. So he taught me a lot. And the guys, some of the guys that I worked with at Letterman, like Steve O'Donnell, and who was my first head writer, and Gerard Mulligan, and um, guys like that at the show, they were really great. I worked on a couple of other shows, and I met people like uh, Brian McConaughey, who was one of the original writers on Saturday Night Live. And I worked with Tony Hendra on a project and, you know, people like uh, Meryl Marco. And these lessons weren't long and deep. They were like that. Do it like that, you know. And you just hope that you're listening and you hope you, that you take it in when somebody says something. You hope you think, oh, you know what? This is important, what they're telling me. You know, Dave was, Dave was and is very knowledgeable as a grammarian, I mean, stunningly. And one of his things early on was signs. If you're talking about what a sign says, a sign does not say, a sign does not talk, the sign reads. That was like a lesson. And a lot of that is just practical stuff. And then it's just down the road, it's just feeling secure enough in your own comedic mind to let that come through. So, uh, yeah, and as a comic, Oh, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to come along at the beginning of the comedy boom. So I saw a lot of great people. You know, I saw Rodney Dangerfield a lot. And I saw Jerry Seinfeld when he was in the business maybe a year or two. Larry David and all these people. And my wife, my late wife, Adrian Tulsh, who died seven months ago. You know, very early on when I passed Audition at Catch a Rising Star and and I was hanging out there every night from nine to two. And some nights you get on, some nights you don't. But Boy, I saw great comics, you know, people just starting out and people that had exploded already. And there was one guy, this is a great story. There was one guy that was a regular at the club that I had not seen. It was a guy named Glenn Hirsch, who's still working 
And I remember saying to Adrian, he's the one actor I haven't seen, Glenn. Who's he like? And Adrian said to me, he's like Glenn Hirsch. She said, that's what happens. She said, you get better and better and you just get closer to yourself and what makes you funny. You don't remind anybody of anybody else. You remind them of yourself. And I thought that that was, you know, I, 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 well, it was 35 years ago and I remember it like it was yesterday. You've listed a few people there, but it occurs to me that you have surrounded yourself with funny for your whole life. Your well, years. my family was, yeah, well, I mean, I grew up, my family's very funny, yeah, yeah. I did not, I know what you're saying, I agree with you. I think that maybe I sought some people out, but I think that people find you if that's what you're, if that's the way you look at life. I think that those people find you rather than you find them. Yeah, they're attracted to you and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, attractive, I don't know if I'm. Attractive. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's true. But my family is very funny. You know, my younger brother, I'm the fifth of six children. It was a large Jewish family. There was never enough guilt to go around. And um, my younger brother, John, he's got shtick. He's much more physical than I am. And he really cracks me up. So there's always people like that. So throughout your life, all of the people that you've, well, that you've encountered just in any of the things that you've done, who would you say was the most hilarious person you ever encountered? That's a tough question. I, I will say this about comics. If a comic isn't funnier off stage than he is on stage, not worth it. It's not worth it. You got to be 90% of the comics I know that, that are funnier off stage. And that's the thing that's great because that's their core. I mean, you know, Larry David, Larry Amoros, my wife, Adrian Tulsh, I would say those three. And then, so those three right off the top of my head. And then underneath them, there's a, there's a big pile of people underneath them. Like my friend, Jeff Stilson is really funny. I mean, Chris Rock, you know, really funny. Let me say this about, I've known I know a lot of people that became famous and a lot of famous people. There's only two people I know that became better people when they got famous. Cause you know, that never happens. Cause then you're surrounded and everybody puts up with your nonsense. Larry David and Chris Rock are better people famous than the, and they were pretty good. They were pretty decent people before they were famous, but they're better people now. So, but, uh, Julie Halston is really, really very funny. She's an actress. She's a good friend of mine. But I would say if I want a table, if it's a table for four and, and, and I'm at the table, I want Larry David, Larry Amaros, and, and Adrian Tulsh. I want that's the table I want. So Dave Letterman doesn't make that table. <laughs> He's pretty. <laughs> but, but and he would understand. He would understand. We're joined by author Bill Schiff. When you're writing your novels, how much are you thinking about the reader? Oh, you've embarrassed me. Not at all. Hmm. Because I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the rhythm. I'm thinking of what it sounds like, if it's pleasing. If I do my job, 
I think the reader is taken care of. I think the reader is taken care of. I only think of the reader in terms of, to me, the only thing that when you're writing a book, you should be thinking about the reader. The only thing is, is it clear? Is what I'm writing, does it follow? Because if you're asking me if the question is, do I write something and say, oh, I don't know if the reader's going to get that. I don't care about that. I don't care about that. If it's 100 people and 95 don't get it and five get it, that's fine because they get, you know, that's the extra that they get. I'm just trying, I'm trying to, to communicate. And if I communicate, I don't have to think about the reader. If I'm, if I feel like I'm communicating successfully, I have a couple of people that read my stuff when I'm writing it. And there's only one, as I tell them, there's only one valid note because I don't care. I don't want, you know, well, I like this character, but I don't like this character. It doesn't, that's not important. All I want to know is, is there anything that's unclear? Because I don't want, as has happened to me, I don't want people to read a big, you know, 50 or 60 pages or a hundred pages and come back to me and say, Hey, um, you know, why isn't, uh, I haven't read anything about Dino in the last 50 pages. And you say to them, well, you know, Dino died on page 23. He what? <laughs> you know, well, then you got to go back and fix that. That's an example. To me, that's the only, because it's, it's my story. I'm the one telling it. It's my responsibility to convey it. And if it is satisfying me, if I feel that I'm being successful, then I think that the reader is going to be taken care of. I'm not sure a lot of people would agree with me, but that's my philosophy. I don't think about it. In the same way, in the same way, this is very analogous. When the Letterman Show moved from 1230 to 1130, people asked us, well, how are you going to, um, you know, relate to an older audience? My thinking was, you know, when I write a joke, I don't think, is this going to appeal to the 39 to 55 demographic or is this more for the 29 to 43 dem? I don't think, I just think, is this funny? Does this work? Okay. I think that'll really bog you down. I think that's so distracting and not creative. When you were writing your first novel, The Ringer, was that intimidating? Is it intimidating to write a book for the first time? No, be, it, the reason why it wasn't is because that it wasn't my first novel. I wrote my first novel, which was a thing called Who Listens? And it was a typical first novel. It was 100,000 words, 80,000 of which were I. And I sent it around, and everybody said the same thing. Everybody said, this is hilarious. How about a plot? And uh, I thought they were being a little nitpicky, so... It was, and I did it in as long and drawn out a way as, as you could write a first novel. I did it longhand and then I loaded it in and, but boy, I loved the process. It was so different from writing jokes. Everything slowed down. And the lesson of my first novel was, oh, I want to do this again. I want to try this again. And well, I guess I'll do this plot thing that everybody seems to be so obsessed with. So when I, I came up with the story of The Ringer, which was part autobiographical based on my years as a, as a good softball player playing on a lot of different teams and occasionally getting paid. So 
I think you asked me if it was intimidating. It wasn't intimidating, but I will say that with every single novel I've written, except the first one, because that was, you don't know what you're doing and it's just kind of pure joy and whatever it is. But with every novel that followed, at some point, I would walk into my wife's room and I would say to her, it's over. It's, I, I, it's, I, it's not, it's not happening. It's over. I made a mistake. This is, you know, this is a mistake. And, and she would say to me, okay, but why don't you just go back in and do another half hour? And, you know, it would be all right. And, and then the next book, there would be, you know, it would happen after that. And I would go into the, the room and I, into her office and I would say to her, look, I know I've said this before, but I, I'm telling you, I mean it. This is, this one's over. It's, it's not working. I don't have it. I don't have it. And again, you know, go back in the, and this went on and on. And my last novel, Shrink Thyself, I really did get stuck at one point. And I walked in there. And again, I said to her, listen, I know I've said it before. And I know that I was just, you know, sort of rattling around. But I really, I really mean it this time. I really mean it. It's over. And she would say, yeah, I know. But why don't you just go back in there and... um and the thing that was different about Shrink Thyself is I really did have a little, there was a thing where I couldn't go on with the book and what the hell was I going to do? And I felt like I'd kind of painted myself into a corner. And then, I don't know, something said to me, well, Bill, why don't you, you started out as a reporter, you know, as a newspaperman, why don't you do a little reporting and see if that opens things up? And of course I did, you know, I made three phone calls and then I got the whole last third of the book. So now that, having said that, a few years ago, uh, five years ago, I was really in a block. I couldn't think of anything. And I decided to write, finally, I decided to write a sequel to The Ringer. And I've been working on that for five years. And most of my books take two years, maybe two and a half years to write. And I'm still two thirds of the way through this at five years and and you know i wish adrian was around for many reasons but mostly so i could say to her you know i know that i said this but but this look at this i really haven't finished this <laughs> but <laughs> so that's my long long answer to that you were mentioning the uh the shrink thyself book yeah it, it was some time ago i was sitting in a therapist office and it just occurred to me i thought this is funny oh yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> And the therapist was looking at me like, what is he smirking at? This, you know, he was thinking, this isn't funny. And then I was watching the late show and I saw your appearance. Yeah. About the book. So tell me, do you think therapy is funny? Yes, I do. I mean, because I think it's funny specifically, but I also think it's funny globally because think about what you're doing. You're going into a room. And telling your problems or your issues to another human being, not an advanced human being, not anybody with any more knowledge than you. And you're going to and he might have something to say to you or he might have nothing to say to you. And somehow you're going to get better. Well, that premise is hilarious. And when you think about it, and as I said to Dave, and as I tell people when I go out, with this book, I say, here's the thing, you know, my father 
used to say about stockbrokers. He used to say, if they knew anything, they wouldn't be brokers. Meaning, if they knew anything, they'd be billionaires and they wouldn't have to try and get work, get money from other people to invest. They would have all of their own money and they would be... And it's the same thing with shrinks. There's a lot of... There's millions of shrinks and there's seven good ones. And I hope you have one of the seven good ones. And how I came up with this book, and I'm glad that you dovetailed into this, was I had in my previous books, I had one or two crazy shrinks in every one of my previous novels, in the previous three novels. And I found it a great device. I found them great characters. And they tickled me to write about. And as a four-decade veteran of the process, it better tickle me. So when I set out to write the fourth book, I told myself, listen, Bill, you've had some fun with the crazy shrinks, but you can't do this anymore. You can't. You've done it. You've done it in every book. Sometimes you've done it twice. So you need to write a book about a guy trying to live a life after therapy, trying to live the unexamined life. You have to write a non-psychological book where the character just lives in the moment. And that was the premise. And then my wife had ended therapy. And once a year or once every six months would go out to dinner with her therapist, which I thought was just hilarious. I mean, what, really? And they would talk about whatever they would talk about. And I thought the notion of being a friend with your therapist was so I kind of conflated that. And so I set out to write the book and it occurs to me, well, for a guy to leave, to not be in therapy, he will have had to have left therapy and you got to have at least one last session. So having determined that, I said, okay. We'll put one more shrink in there, but this guy will be really, really, really nuts. And he was, and so inappropriate. So everything takes place in the outside world, and this character ends therapy to live the, the unexamined life, and right after he leaves therapy, things happen to him that would drive anybody else screaming back into therapy. And so that's how that came about. But do, yeah, I think it's very funny. I think it's very funny. And I told a story when I was promoting the book on Letterman about, and I went to a guy, I've been to a lot of different guys, but I went to a guy who was, and I've never heard of this before or since, he was a psychotherapeutic analyst, which means he was not a doctor, but he did analysis where you lay on the couch and you did not face your accuser. You did not face the... Uh, therapist. You know, he didn't talk and, you know, you just sort of free associate. He rarely spoke. So I saw him for a little while and, you know, they don't speak. They don't have any reaction. And Adrian and I, we'd been going out at the time. We weren't married yet. And we'd had a terrible fight. So I go to him and I'm devastated. And I said, this is bad. I think it's all over. I said, you know, she hates me. And he said, she doesn't hate you. And I say, she called me a piece of shit. And this is what I hear. <laughs> he starts laughing. 
So you tell me that's not funny. So that's how I feel about therapy. Now, when he started to laugh, did you? I was hurt. And then, as I always do, I thought, I can't wait to get home and tell Adrian <laughs> that he started laughing. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I, like a lot of writers, I have less of a reaction. And then I just think, oh, this is a good story. So that's how I react. On your website, and all the listeners, they can look at this. It's BillSheft.com. You mentioned that you're available to write jokes for people. Yes. And there's a very prestigious list. And some of the funniest people you've written for. Yeah. Larry David, as you've mentioned. Regis Philbin. Uh, <laughs> then Bill Murray. There's a lot of them. So tell us, what is the process like for you when you get that email or you get that call and they say, okay, I'm going to be at this place. What do right. you do? You want as much, you want as much information as you can get from them. Where are they going to be? Where is it? How many people are going to be there? Is there going to be anybody famous there? You just want as much information as possible. And then when do you need it? And if you are, most people, you're very familiar with their voice. If you're unfamiliar, maybe you go online, you try and listen to how they sound. And then you, um, you try to write, you want the jokes to be funny, but you also want it, want it to be plausible for them to say it. With celebrities or people that are well known, it's easier because everybody in the audience has preconceived expectations of what these people are like. Some people are, are that nobody knows they're harder and easier. You know, I wrote, it's a guy named, he's the Reverend John Jenkins. Is it John Jenkins? He's the president of Notre Dame University. And I was contacted by his publicist and he was speaking at a big dinner on St. Patrick's Day night here in New York. And Cardinal Dolan was going to be there and the mayor was going to, and he wanted some jokes. I said, Fine. I don't know what this guy sounds like, but I know that he's Catholic and I know that I'm going to write a lot of Catholic based jokes. But if I do it, if they're clear enough and if this guy knows how to speak in public, it's going to be fine. And I wrote some bold stuff for him and he did it all and he got a standing ovation. And that was very gratifying. But that's all credit to him because he trusted the material and he made a commitment to the material. And that's what a great comic does. He has commitment to the material. Who do you think has done the best delivery of a Bill Sheft joke? Duh. Well, you know, Dave, for sheer numbers, it's got to be Dave. And the other thing about Dave is because he's Dave, he put his own mark on it. So he made it that much better. He also rewrote thousands of my jokes and made them better. So just by sheer numbers, it's got to be Dave. You know, I wrote for Chris Rock at the Oscars in 2005, and he did a couple lines of mine. And boy, it was very, it was very gratifying because it was, it's like you said, he turned a Bill Chef joke into a Chris Rock joke. And that's 
the greatest thing. That's the most satisfying thing as a writer that can happen is that somebody makes what you wrote, somebody really makes it their own and nobody else could have delivered it in that way but that guy. I've written a lot for Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary's like that. You know, Dennis Leary and I, we both grew up in Boston. We couldn't be more different. We couldn't have come from more different backgrounds. And, and we're very good friends. And we have a lot of the same interests. But he, he and I could not be more different. And yet it is nothing for me to write stuff for him and for him to deliver it and everybody react as if it's coming out of his head at that moment. I mean, that's just a guy that is really skilled. It's just a guy that's really skilled. So yeah, I think about Dennis. I've, yeah, I've done, I've done a lot with him and I've written for, you know, a guy like, Oh my God, like Nathan Lane. He has this, he can really memorize huge sections of material. So you never have to worry about writing something that's too long. He's really gifted and makes it very conversational. Yeah. You know, I had the one nonfiction book that I wrote, which is called the best of the show, which is a collection of my article of my columns from sports illustrator. I was lucky enough to have a column in sports illustrator for three years, a sports humor column. When I was putting together the collection, they said, well, you got to get a foreword from somebody famous. So I wrote Rick Riley, who had the big column in the back of the magazine and was the most well-known sports writer in the country. And and I said, will you write a foreword for my book? And he said, I don't have time. He said, I'm really busy. I'm doing a million things. He said, but you write it. And he said, make it Riley funny. Don't make it chef funny. Because that'll be too funny and everybody will know you wrote it for me. And that, so I thought that that was very humble and, and it was, and, and I did it. It was no problem. It took me about 20 minutes, actually. Do you think comedians are misunderstood? Uh, no, I think they're sort of overly understood. I think it's, um, you know, is there anything less funny? than people discussing what makes something funny, I mean, or what makes a person funny. I don't think they're misunderstood. I don't think they're, I would like to think that they're a superior level of human being, but, you know, I went to Harvard and some of the dumbest people I ever met in my life were at Harvard. And (laughs) it's sort of the same thing with comics. I mean, I've met some of the smartest people that I've ever met in my life were comics. And also some of the most successful were not that bright. And because they didn't have to be, and because they understood why they were up there and the odd, they were so accessible to the audience because the audience would hear him and they would laugh and they would think, well, you know what? He's just a dumb guy like me. He's just as clueless as I am. I mean, there's a guy, Brian Regan, who I know you know. I mean, he's brilliant. But his whole thing is that he's this confident, dumb guy. And the audience just eats that up. I don't don't want to do the percentages, but I think it's maybe 30% an act and 70% this sort of real, 
thing that's within him that he's that his brain that his comic brain has been able to pull out i but there but i don't think they're any smarter than i don't like when they feel that their opinion means more in terms of social issues and political issues to me that's a little um grandiose i mean my feeling is I don't care about my opinion. Why should you? And so I've always stayed away from from that. Point of view is different. A point of view is different than an opinion. Hmm. Anyone out there can look at your blog. It's linked on the website. It's a Tumblr blog on BillChef.com. I was looking through a lot of your entries there on the blog, and one of your friends that comes up a few times and I can only imagine that you all are close friends, and that's Barbara Gaines. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, well. Tell us know. about her. Well, I mean, she's not from this earth. She's not from this earth. She worked for Dave Letterman for 35 years, started as a receptionist on the morning show in 1980, worked for him, Rose all the way to executive producer is uh, someone who never gives herself enough credit. And it's my job to, among other jobs, to try and make her aware of that. She is a delight to be with. We have deep laughs and um, she's much funnier than she'll give herself credit for. She's much brighter than she'll give herself credit for. She's just really... She's very warm. You know, she had a 60th birthday party and she's been taking karate. So she had this birthday party at the dojo. And, you know, there were 40 people there in geese and taking a karate. And I was one of them. And I have to tell you, the kind of friendship we have, I feel like I'm the only friend she has like that. And then you go to this birthday party. And I knew a lot of the people there. And it's like, you know what? She makes everybody feel that way. Everybody has, she belongs to a lot of people. And my ex, my uh, late wife was like that. And she is just a magnetic person. I just can't say enough about her. You know, and we're the same age. We have a lot of shared stuff. And, and, and um, the, um, the best thing about the show ending was that we get to spend more time together in the world. You know, when the show was there, we spent a lot of time in the building, but maybe I would see her twice a year outside of the, the building. I would see her on uh, Pesach because she would have a Seder. And I would, you know, maybe we would go to a funeral together. You know what I mean? Or maybe we might run out and go to some silly show together. But that was it. We spent no time together. And we were as close as you could be. I know a few people that are not from this earth, and she's one of them. That's beautiful. You know, I was listening to your interview with the the Big Think on YouTube. Oh, that was a lot of fun. But can, I just want to say one more thing. Sure. For, for those of, for the, you know, however many people are out there, if you want any of the gaps filled in about what I've said today or the people that I've talked about, 
Go to YouTube and punch in Adrian Tolsch. It's A-D-R-I-A-N-N-E-T-O-L-S-C-H. Adrian Tolsch Memorial. And you'll see the memorial we put on for my wife. And Barbara Gaines produced it. And it was me and Julie Halston, who I mentioned, and Larry Amaros, and a woman named Kathleen McCarthy and Christine Quinn. And, and you will laugh much, much, much more than you cry. And I'll just say that after that memorial, as I was walking off, Dave Letterman came up to me and said, that was great. Will you do mine? And I said, yeah, I have next Thursday open. And uh, but uh, so you can I would recommend that. Well, as I mentioned a second ago about that, the big think interview. Right. You said something in there that I thought, wow, I've never heard it put so simply. You said the Letterman show celebrated failure. I wish it was my line. I think it's, I think that was Robert Morton's line. Bob Morton, who was the old producer. Well, wow. he said, yeah. And I thought that it was the old, the show on NBC was a celebration of failure. And when we went to CBS, we got slicker because we had to. But I think that in the last 10 years at CBS, I think we went back, we returned more to those aspects of the old show. And I loved, and, you know, Dave was such a big personality and he was so much bigger than the show is that people, I thought, failed to pay attention to what was going on in the show. And I don't, I don't blame him. I would have been the same way. But we were doing stuff on that show. The whole conceit that we would do almost every night was that his staff had no respect for the fact that there was a show going on. And that he was constantly being interrupted, that the staff did not take him seriously, that he really didn't have the respect of anybody. And I said, I just love that. You know, the fact that Alan Coulter was always running some sort of racket and Paul wasn't paying attention or Pat Farmer or Joe Grossman would come out, and interrupt his monologue. And I just love that because I, I think everybody takes themselves so seriously and that he let us do that and would get a kick out of that. I don't think he ever got enough credit for that. All the years that you spent with the Letterman show, what did that teach you about life? Uh, life? It taught me, well, it taught me that I'm crazy, which I, I was a lesson I'd rather not have. Uh, it taught me, well, the biggest thing it taught me was don't have, unrealistic expectations of being taken care of and and that you we always worry about the wrong thing that you know I'm full of self-centered fear and there's only two self-centered fears it's fear that you're going to lose what you have or not get what you want and it was all those lessons that I had to address and about and then if you're if you're having a bad day at work that it probably doesn't have anything to do with a coworker. It has to do with something in you that you're probably not being humble enough. <laughs> wow. That's the first list that I can think of. But it taught me a lot about life because it was my life. I spent a lot of time there. And, and the, the show ended, and it ended as it should have ended. It ended, couldn't have ended better in terms of the last show. And the only thing I miss are the people. I miss a little bit of the urgency of because uh, that's missing from my life. I don't have that urgency that I have to get something out. So I miss that. But mostly 
They're very special people there. You know, Walter Kim, who worked on the show, he was at LinkedIn for a while after he left the show, and he did a lovely, you can, this is also on YouTube, it's called Leaving Letterman. And it was a bunch of us talking about the show ending and what we did and how we felt. And I mean, there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about Dave and what kind of person he is. But for a guy to engender that kind of loyalty and have people working for him, in my case, 24 years or 30 or 35 years. And these are really special people. These are people that I really love. And, and, and we still get together. We don't get together we probably get together just as just enough, but it's not enough for me. Another thing that you do is the music. Oh yeah. There's the website. You, they can check this out. I feel like we're giving people tons of links, but it's the truant. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. The truants live.com. The, the slogan, we play nothing after 1967. Right. Tell us about the band. Well, I'll tell you about the band, and the band was born out of my second novel, Time Won't Let Me. So my older brother, who is um, eight years older than me, he went to Phillips Academy in Andover, which is the most prestigious prep school in the United States, and he went there in the 60s, and like a lot of people in the 60s, he was in a band, and like a lot of people in the 60s in a band, they made an album, and they pressed 500 copies, and... They used to play dances, and that was it. And then, 15 years later, there's an article in the Boston Phoenix. Do you know this band, The Rising Storm? Well, their first album, which came out 15 years ago, is now worth $1,000. And then it was worth $2,000. And then it was worth $3,000. Now it's worth about $10,000. And the reason why is because they were a little better than most prep school garage bands in the 1960s and they also put original songs on their album which nobody did they always just would do covers and so what happened is collectors even though they were all professional people would get them back together every five years and they became this kind of cult band and there as a matter of fact your timing couldn't be more perfect because in last sunday's new york times in the arts and leisure section there's a full-page feature on them, The Rising Storm, because they just played at their 50th reunion at Andover, and my band, The Truants, opened and closed for them because they, you know, they, they can't play the time. They can't play three hours. They're not a real band. You know, my band can. So that's The Rising Storm story. So when I was writing my second novel, I decided I loved their story, but it just wasn't dark or greasy enough for me. So I made it. It's a prep school band, and it's now how much later? It's 30 years later, and the album's worth $10,000, and these guys can't get out of their own way to reunite. And that was the premise of the book, Time Won't Let Me. It did very well. I got a lot of feedback from people saying, this is the most accurate book about a band I've ever read. And, and I'd never been in a band. I just had witnessed my brother and learned how to play the drums by watching him play the drums. And... People kept saying that to me. They kept saying it to me. And then finally, I thought, you know what? Maybe maybe I should try to pursue this. Maybe I should see if I can still have my chops. And I joined a musician's collective, and I played there for a couple of years. And then I decided to start a band 
that would just play the stuff that I love, which was the British Invasion and garage rock music and nothing after 1967. And I decided to call the band The Truants after the fictional band in my book. And that was seven years ago. And we've had some personnel changes, but we are going strong. And we play regularly in New York at a place called Prohibition. And I started this band at 53, and it's one of the great things I've done. I mean, I'm so proud of these guys and what I've been able to manifest. And, and we also have the benefit of being very good. You know, I love when people come to see me and they say, they say two things. They say, look, I knew you guys would be good. I didn't know you'd be that good. And the other thing they say to me is, I love the band. I love the music, but I come here to see you this happy because, you know, you're just smart. I mean, and I love it. It's been one of the great things that I've done in my life. I feel very blessed. What song do you think the Truants do the best? I think uh, we do a lot. The best Beatles song we do is either I'm a Loser or Nowhere Man. We have a lot of good vocals, but I would say I'm a Loser. Or no, and so that's the best Beatles song we do. I can tell you, it may not be the best song we do, but every time we play it, and we play it every show, I get choked up playing. And that's, of all things, it's the bird song, My Back Pages, because it's such a beautiful song. And I never envisioned my band would be playing folk rock stuff, but we really do it well, and we have the vocals. And I'm telling you, I get a lump in my throat every time we play that song. And it's a beautiful, it, it also has the benefit of being a beautiful song in its own right. We do the greasy stuff well. We do the psychedelic stuff. We do I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night and Incense and Peppermints. And we do uh, the Old Stones and we do the Animals. We do the Animals doing Boom Boom, which is an old blues John Lee Hooker song. We do their cover of it. And that is just a rocker. There, There's a lot. I would say if I had to pick two songs... I think if, if, if we got booked on a show and we only had to do one song, I might pick I'm a Loser or I might pick uh, My Back Pages. So those, those two, but they're awful, you know, a lot of good ones. And people can, there's a lot of video and there's a lot of audio and you can hear it. So what is in the future with Bill Sheft? Oh, God knows. I mean, I don't know. You know, people say to me, so you're retired? And I say, no, I'm out of work. It's a little different. I've been writing... Um, <laughs> In terms of right now, I write every other week for Salon, and which is a lovely site, and they've been good to me. And I write these, um, I write fake profiles of people in the Trump administration. So it's just like a roast. I mean, I'm just taking the facts and trying to weave them into a profile, and, and that's been a lot of fun. That's been a great refillable for me. I'm finishing a book that started on a website that Nikki Fink started called Hollywood Dementia, which was a show business fiction website. And I started writing the series for her and I wrote 10 pieces and they did very well. And I realized, well, Jesus, I got half a novel here. So I wrote the second half here on my own and I'm very close to finishing that. It's about a comic, a bust out comic named Tommy Dash. And just think Louis C.K., without the career or the self-awareness. And it's basically Tommy is trying to make amends to get himself back into the business. And he's a lovable screw-up. And uh, I've had a lot of fun 
with that. So those two things and, you know, a little project here. I did a little something for Tracy Morgan and a little thing here. I, I wouldn't mind getting a little more of a consistent side gig and, and I miss writing jokes on a regular basis. I wouldn't mind doing that. But, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old and so closely associated with Dave Letterman that it's tough for people to look past that. And I wish they would, but I kind of understand it. But as I say, there's only, there's only 32 NFL head coaches and there's really only six good ones. And I think that there's a hundred guys that write topical jokes and there's really only six good ones. It's the same thing with the shrinks. So I feel good. I feel like I'll be taken care of. As I say to Barbara Gange, other than the dead wife, you know, who's got it better than me? So I, uh, I keep going and every day is, uh, we start again. So in closing, totally open-ended, what would you say to our listeners? Well, I would say if you're a writer, writers write. I would say if you're Jewish, if you ever forget you're a Jew, a Gentile will remind you. To my like-minded people out there, I'd say don't drink and go to meetings. My last question. Who is Bill Sheft? Oh, he's an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in a solipsist. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's evolving. Yeah, he's, uh, he's evolving. And um, if you want to put a little miracle grow on your evolvement, your evolution, lose somebody that oh. you've been with for 35 years, as I did. And, you know, you think you know who you are. But you, you don't really know who you are until you suffer loss, I think. And then, because you have to, I mean, you really got to start over. And you really got to be open. And you got to, I mean, and, and I've known people that have lost people after me. And the only thing I can pass on to them is keep talking and keep moving. Keep talking to people and keep moving. Stay in motion. You can't think your way into a right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. So it's not easy, but everybody's got their bag of rocks, and this is this is mine. And I'm just a guy that I had a marriage that everybody envied. And my wife was as funny and smart and kind as a 100 people. Well, this is where I am now. But her passing did not extinguish my capacity to love and be loved. So, you know, that's a very serious thing from a guy that's made his living in uh, comedy. So should I tell you a joke? Should I tell you, you want a joke? Sure. Yeah. Uh, 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 well, I'll tell you, well, this one comes to mind. Guy goes into a bar, says to the bartender, give me 15 shots of scotch, just line them up. Bartender does it, and the guy goes down the line, bang, 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 gets to about shot number eight, and the bartender says, hey, whoa, 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 slow down. And the guy says to him, let me tell you something. If you had what I have, you would drink the way I drink. And the partner says, oh, my God, what do you have? And the guy says, a dollar. And so that's <laughs> uh, that's all i got for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Something that Bill Sheft said in this interview has come back into my mind several times. He said, you can't think your way into a right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. 
I will never forget that. As it turns out, that comes from Bill Wilson. Some of you might know who that is, but I'm very grateful to Bill Sheft for saying that. It's rescued me a few times since this interview. For more information on Bill Sheft, I suggest you check out his website, BillSheft.com, S-C-H-E-F-T. If you like the Paul Leslie Hour, please consider subscribing, reviewing, and rating. Once you've subscribed, if you want to review and rate us, it helps other people to find us. So that's very appreciated. You can also stream all episodes of the show from the website, thepaulleslie.com. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do so at 912-376-9529. What you say just may end up on the show. That's all we've got for this time. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Find us on iTunes or Stitcher. It's always a pleasure to have you here. I'm honored that you spend time with us. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.